Welcome to TrekCast, the official podcast of the Real Estate Council here in Dallas, Texas. I'm Bill San Antonio, Trek's Marketing and Communications Coordinator. And before we get into today's episode, we've got a few housekeeping issues to discuss. First up, we have a new name. We are now TrekCast. That's T-R-E-C-C-A-S-T. We were previously the Trek Podcast. And the reason for that change is that we have a new home. In addition to SoundCloud, we are now also on iTunes. So iPhone users, go search TrekCast. Again, T-R-E-C-C-A-S-T in your podcast app. And subscribe and write us a review and take us wherever you go. Listen to us at the gym or in the car, wherever you may be, wherever you listen to podcasts. Today we're kicking off our Transportation Revolution series with our most recent Bank of Texas Speaker Series panel featuring Travis Considine of Uber Elevate, Stephen Duong of ACOM, Michael Kaiser of the Beck Group, Rod Shabesh of Stantec, and moderated by Tom Bamonte of the North Central Texas Council of Governments. We'll also have interviews with each of them and a few others in the coming weeks, but if you're unable to attend in September, you're sure in luck today. Before we get into the panel, we'd like to take a moment to thank today's sponsor, Boca Powell, for supporting this episode and our Transportation Revolution series. And now here's a quick word from them. I'm John Orfield, I'm a principal at Boca Powell. We've done multiple flight training facilities, most notably for Southwest Airlines and United Airlines. And I come from a Houston background, and so we all wanted to be astronauts before we wanted to become architects. When you get in these facilities, they're absolutely amazing, but you really feel a part of that effort to get people in the air and make sure that the airways are safe for us, but also it's just about the dreams of humans to fly. Boca Powell is moving people and companies forward. To learn more, visit bocapowell.com. Thanks again to Boca Powell for supporting today's episode of TrekCast and our Transportation Revolution series. Let's go now to our September speaker series panel, Transportation Revolution, here on TrekCast. So, Michael, why don't we start with you, if you'd introduce yourself. Sure. Uh, I'm Michael Kaiser, uh, Director of Design uh, for the Dallas office of the Beck Group. Uh, we're an architecture and construction company. Uh, we have seven offices, uh, predominantly in the south. Um, and so, again, I head up the design of our group. We have 80-plus architects here in the Dallas office, 150 uh, total architects, uh, like I said, across the other offices. Great. So do we have, by the way, do we have our slides? We, we have a PowerPoint, I believe. Right. It's up there. So. Okay, great. Awesome. Um, so these, this, the first slide is really showing um, all the different schemes um, that were part of the Uber Elevate Summit that was this last, uh, the start of summer uh, in LA. Uh, we were privileged to be one of the six to be able to participate in this and do a design uh, for this really forward thinking uh, project. And Michael, what is Uber Elevate and what technolo transportation technology you're talking about? So really, um, it's about air taxis, right? So eventually autonomously uh, driven air taxis that will be able to fly you uh, from point to point. Uh, they're called EV tolls. I don't know if that's the great best name for them yet, but if anyone has a good name, it's probably, a, probably something I know they're looking for, right? You guys are thinking about that, right? Um, anyway, um, so we were, we were tasked with designing a port, uh, a vertiport that would be able to accommodate 150 takeoffs and landings per hour. 
um, at one scale are 1,000 takeoffs and landings per hour. So it was a really interesting uh, project to deal with. I know that um, several of the other firms are here also as well. You guys, Boca, Corgan, uh, many of the Dallas firms were able to, to take part in this. So anyway, just real quick, one of the things about <clears throat> when, we, when we started this project was um, when you're given a project like this, you're thinking, this is in the future, right? And we can really dream about some interesting things and come up with some kind of crazy architecture. But then we realized that this is very close. It's five years out, according to certain projections. So we thought, well, we have to really kind of be realistic about this. And because we're architecture and construction, um, we felt like we had to design something that would potentially be affordable and understand the costs. And so these were some early sketches that we did. Let's keep going through some of these slides. Uh, we based our designs really on uh, the FADOs themselves. These are the takeoff and landing spots and the geometries of those and also the distances that these have to be from each other to, uh, to accommodate both takeoffs and simultaneous takeoffs and landings. Uh, so that drove this kind of hexagonal design. And then we took that hex and thought about the idea of the beehives, uh, bees coming and going, and then uh, really that generated the architecture. And so then you can see uh, we really had to think through how we would accommodate all these takeoffs and landings uh, and, and went through really kind of how to diagram that out and how to think about how you have to accommodate all these. The other part of this, too, was that we were given seven minutes to recharge these vehicles. And I think each one of them can fly 60 miles on a charge. And so seven, seven minutes is really a quick turnaround if you think about it, being able to disembark, reembark, and also have it charged. So that was a really tough problem to have to solve. The other thing that we, we talked about is how to mitigate sound. Um, these things are, can be potentially loud. They're not as loud as a helicopter, but they do make noise. And so how do, we, how do we capture that sound or deflect it? And then just go through some more of these. These are some, some views, really, of the interior, what it would look like. We provided an animation as well, so I don't know if that's part of this today. And just, I think you can go just kind of quickly through these. This is what it looks like. Um, this is the bigger one that accommodates the 1,000 takeoffs and landings. And so it's really modular. You think about it, you start with um, the simple one platform, and then how can you make it bigger? And then also um, thinking about how once these land, a vehicle then would pull up and take them that final mile, right? How do you, how do you accommodate that? And we use the idea of an airport, how airport drop-offs work. So I think that's pretty much it. We also, like I said, provided some uh, cost data for this. Um, so the smaller one is the one that we priced, and we, we were looking at around 50 million total cost of construction. And I think when Uber was, when, you, when the presentation was made about the initial studies, I think 12 million was a number that was thrown out for just a simple one that would be on top of a parking deck. And so, you know, new construction at 50 million, that's probably a little cost prohibitive, and so how would we begin to drive those prices down and make this much more affordable? So what's your nomination for the transportation innovation that's going to drive the most change in commercial real estate in the next 25 years? Well, I think it's autonomous vehicles. For one thing, um, it's going to reduce the requirement for parking. And I think that's a huge, I mean, that's, that's, that's going to be a big game changer. Because right now, so much of what we design is designed around parking, facilitating that. Great. Thank you. And, and I, I want to underscore, um, speaking from the Council of Governments, what the ambition of both the public sector and the private sector here in North Texas is. Um, Uber Elevate gives us a chance to lead in the aerial space, the new emerging forms of mobility that you see with Uber Elevate. 
with Drive AI, the EasyMail deployment in uh, Arlington, and other efforts that you may hear about uh, soon, we're trying to also be a leader on ground automation. So we're really looking, and we see with the partnership with Hillwood and others, that the, the commercial real estate industry is starting to see these new forms of mobility. They're starting to build, um, build into how they design and finance um, um, operations by considering the availability of new mobility needs in the near future. So Rod, moving to you next. Welcome from Canada. It's great to have you here. Um, now's your time to give your introduction and again address that issue of what's, what's going to be the big driver in commercial real estate. Great. Thanks, Tom, and uh, welcome, everybody. Um, so uh, maybe we could just advance the, the first slide here. Um, so um, my name is Rod Shabesh. Uh, I'm a senior vice president at Fantech, and I lead our, our uh, smart mobility initiatives uh, company-wide. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about what Stantec's doing in this space. Um, we, oh, we, yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, as, as everyone is well aware, uh, the future of driverless vehicles um, is exciting, and yet at the same time, there are some pitfalls we have to keep an eye out for. Uh, next slide. So just briefly about Stantec, um, there's some numbers up there just in terms of, uh, in terms of our presence uh, worldwide. Um, you know, we're, 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 uh, one of the things I just wanted to mention here in Texas uh, we have about 750 staff, uh, quite strong, and, and really excited about the market here. Uh, a lot of growth opportunities, and look forward to, to helping Texas out in, uh, as, as this exciting time evolves in transportation and, and how it uh, intermingles with community development and land development. Um, so what I wanted to do is just talk a little bit about the projects that we're working on in Stantec. Um, so there, there's, a, there's a range of projects there. Uh, really what... What I want to kind of explain is that we have sort of a, a full turnkey uh, list of solutions uh, for all types of clients. I'm going to start up in the top left corner. Um, uh, that's a, an image of, of the city of Dubai. Um, we, about a year and a half ago, completed a, a, a project uh, to, to basically develop a code of practice for the Emirates uh, to look at providing the infrastructure uh, plans, the, the, um, the, the process of implementing CAV within that, within that country. Uh, below that is Momentum Station, which is uh, the largest secure test bed uh, in the U.S. Um, it's uh, based in Concord, California, across the bay from San Francisco. Um, we were program managers for it, and at the, at the beginning of it, uh, one of the other advantages, uh, in addition to being close to Silicon Valley, um, is that the first self-driving shuttle uh, in North America arrived there, uh, the EZ-10, um, and we tested it there for about eight months before it moved on to a deployment, its first deployment. Uh, below that is Active Aurora, which is uh, another test bed uh, that we're, uh, we've been involved with since its inception about eight years ago. Um, we're responsible for the infrastructure aspect of connected automated vehicles. Uh, it's very much a connected vehicle test bed initially, and now it's moving more into uh, autonomous vehicles as well. Um, beside that is Bishop Ranch. So the, the EZ-10 that arrived at Momentum Station uh, two years ago uh, has been deployed at a, at a, at a uh, business park called Bishop Ranch. It's been operating for well over a year now. Um, and beside that is uh, Chambly, Georgia, which is a, a suburb of Atlanta. Um, that was a project we started at the beginning of this year. Uh, the community there uh, heard about uh, the, the shuttle, uh, wanted to talk to us. Um, and so we went through a feasibility study. Uh, we then went into um, a route selection, uh, did some public engagement. 
uh, procured a vehicle supplier and we're moving into deployment. Uh, and during that process, what's interesting is there's a large developer nearby that heard about this and they were uh, looking at redeveloping an old GM assembly plant that uh, had been um, demolished and got very excited about the idea of, of developing or connecting the shuttle into their development. And, and then after that, uh, the community that's further down the, the Marta line from, from Chambly also expressed interest in, in doing something similar. So the, the trickle-down effect, I, I hope that here in Frisco uh, and in Arlington that, that continues to happen as well. Um, uh, and then there are a couple other, other projects there. Uh, thanks. Uh, traffic management centers, that's we're doing for the Tennessee DOT where we're doing all the traffic management centers. And that's an important aspect of connected vehicle technology, making sure that you have a have that tied into your, your, your um, TMC and be able to understand where the vehicles are and have the ability to, to have that two-way communication from the vehicle to the TMC and back to the vehicle. Um, we're also doing a smart mobility plan for, for the uh, MPO for Nashville, uh, which again kind of uh, connects all the different types of modes uh, to provide a, a way for, for the greater Nashville area to, to deal with their, uh, their issues, their mobility issues, their, their congestion issues and try to uh, get more efficiency out of the existing infrastructure. Um, and then tied into that is urban places. So that, that's sort of the ultimate where we, where we blend um, transportation and, and our, our community development uh, groups within Stantec. Uh, with this change in transportation, the opportunities that it presents itself uh, to the way people move around um, and linking that with community development is a, is a logical uh, choice. And we've been doing that for about two years and, and we've been focusing on everything from brownfields to TODs, to uh, greenfields, and even to uh, suburban shopping malls and in many parts of the country that are, not, are struggling with things like uh, uh, the, the, the advance of, of Amazon and, and other types of uh, online shopping. Um, and then 100 resilient cities is the other, other uh, area in terms of not only sustainability and, and resiliency in the, in the in future of development, but also looking at um, the economic uh, sustainability and resiliency of, of communities, and uh, it's a big part of what we do. Great. So, Rod, what's your, you get this great perspective, uh, international perspective. What do you see as the biggest driver of change in the commercial real estate market from transportation? Yeah, you know, I, I would say it's the advent of, of um, uh, car ownership uh, starting to decline. And although many of you in the audience right now probably can't imagine not having your car, um, and that's the case with the vast majority of people, mm -hmm. um, the reality is that that's starting to happen now. And in some cities, it's happening quite fast. And so if you're looking at, uh, looking at developments and you think of the amount of money you spend in, in parking structures uh, and, and parking surfaces, I would strongly suggest that you rethink um, or, or try to minimize that as much as possible. Certainly don't uh, retain ownership of land, particularly if it's surface lots. Uh, try to minimize structured parking. Um, mm -hmm. try, to, try to use surface lots that you can later redevelop. In. Because when, when people start um, uh, paying for their ride instead of paying for their vehicle, uh, and it's, it's happening on both ends of the demographic spectrum, the, the millennials and the, uh, and the baby boomers, um, that uh, there's going to be a, there's a lot of money and a lot of infrastructure spent on parking, and that's not going to be needed longer term. So. And just echoing uh, Rand's opening remarks, uh, we certainly hope, I think, have a shared goal to make travel in the future um, a lot less trivial than what it takes to drive across Dallas during rush hour. Trust me, as someone who spent an hour going from downtown to Richardson this morning, I would certainly like to have it be much smoother. So, uh, Travis, welcome. And if you'd share your opening remarks and, again, your thoughts on what's going to be the driver 
of change in real estate over the next 25 years from Uber's perspective? Great. Well, thank you. Uh, it's nice to be here. Uh, I, my name is Travis Considine. I am the communications manager for Uber here in Texas, also Oklahoma and Arkansas. I'm based down in Austin. Uh, I've been fortunate, fortunate in the past to cross paths with many of you, I believe, uh, with uh, in a, my former life where I worked for Governor Perry and Governor Dewhurst. Um, actually, I chose that photo of me there. That's in a that's in a Black Hawk helicopter. Um, figured it was appropriate, talking about vertical takeoff and landing. Um, Governor Perry actually took that photo of me. You could see him in the reflection of my eyeglasses. I'm, I'm not happy because he made me sit by the door, which is an open door on the helicopter. <laughs> the ones we're building have doors. Um, so that's good. But uh, yeah, actually, if you go to the next slide. Um, so a little bit about the Elevate initiative. Um, what it is is, is an urban on-demand uh, 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 vertical takeoff and landing flying ride share network. That is the goal um, of what we're, what we're trying to do here and with all of our partners. Um, and maybe I, I thought it'd be helpful to share with you exactly why we chose Dallas uh, to be the pilot city uh, in, uh, in the United States, North America, and chiefly there, there are five reasons for that. Really, um, we, we have a clear opportunity here, um, and that is that uh, we, we can serve dense populations of people um, spread out over several urban areas, whether it's taking someone from here to the Frisco Station, uh, to Plano, or to Fort Worth. Um, we, we, there, there's a clear purpose. Um, second is our, our ground business here, in Dallas especially, is doing quite well. And it gives us a lot of valuable insights on how people move around the city and North Texas in general. Uh, third is uh, we are fortunate to have world leaders as partners, um, world-class leaders, um, chief among them, Hillwood. Uh, we have um, Bell Helicopters and uh, several of the architect firms um, designing these vertiports. Uh, and then uh, fourth, uh, we are working very closely with senior leadership at uh, DFW uh, to we really have an opportunity there for uh, world-class integration. And then um, NASA, uh, obviously. Um, NASA has a facility here in North Texas where uh, we are actually, at this moment, um, running simulations on, uh, on air traffic uh, uh, where these uh, VTOLs will go to and from uh, just to test everything. Great. And what's uh, your sense of what's going to be the big driver of change in commercial real estate? So I would say, I would say just as you know, skyscrapers and elevators uh, were able to change how um, real estate um, maximized efficiency uh, that uh, the um, using 3D transportation, if you will, getting off the ground will not only solve major transportation problems, but allow cities to use um, the limited space they have more efficiently. Mm -hmm. Great. Thank you. Stephen. Sure. Thanks. Excuse me. So my name is Stephen Duong. I'm an associate vice president with AECOM here in Dallas over our design and planning practice. And we've been involved in a number of initiatives, I think, over the last um, several decades, really, but especially recently regarding kind of emerging trends in transportation mobility and, in general, kind of smart cities and the future of urbanism um, right here in Dallas. Um, so our team, I'm, I'm glad you actually mentioned the 100 Resilient Cities just now because our team uh, worked with the city of Dallas where they're consultant just published the 100 Resilient Cities uh, strategy for the city of Dallas just about a month ago. And that was kind of a blueprint for the city of Dallas to move forward to a new future 
uh, accounting for future mobility, future environmental concerns in a really social and equitable way. Um, another major effort that we've been involved with recently is, of course, the Hyperloop Texas Initiative. Um, our team was part of the um, effort to win the Hyperloop One Global Challenge, which established uh, the GFU market and Texas uh, as a broader whole as one of the 10 first places in the entire world uh, to focus on Hyperloop development. And if you're not familiar with Hyperloop, um, I always laugh when I describe this. Um, it is a next generation mobility system in which you move into a pod that is floating on magnets inside of a vacuum, zipping along to the next city at about 650 to 700 miles an hour. Yeah, that still sounds weird when I say it out loud, actually. Uh, but that, but that, that's what we're looking at here. And so that theoretically means that you could go from Dallas to Austin in about 19 minutes or so. Um, and so you've probably heard, um, I think Virgin Hyperloop 1 was here very recently, giving some presentations. So working with several different firms on this concept that we call hypermobility. And uh, so there are a lot of different, I think, different technologies that are really stretching our cities in interesting ways. And to answer, um, Tom, your question about what I think the most impactful kind of technology on corporate real estate might be is I, I'm going to not say the answer is Hyperloop, and I'm going to kind of tie everyone's answers, I think, a little bit together and say that it's the concept of mobility as a service. And so uh, we've kind of spoken a little bit about it already, but the idea for all of you in the room is it's not necessarily just about that you don't own your car, which is, I think, what most people in the industry expect to happen in the near future. Um, it's the idea that instead of treating mobility as a commodity, as something that you own and you can manage, you control, it's a service. Um, in a lot of ways, it's a service just like Netflix is a service to all of us. It's something you might subscribe to, and it operates in the background of your life, and you just get access to mobility anywhere in your city. You don't have to worry about how to get someplace. You don't have to worry about how much it costs. You just go. So I want to talk about how a little bit how this actually affects corporate real estate, because if you think about mobility as a service as a trend, and you understand that mobility kind of begins to fade and recess into the background of our life, because while you're in the autonomous vehicle or you know, flying taxi or whatever, or Hyperloop, the idea is that you can do whatever you want in that vehicle because you're not having to drive it. So this means in some ways that transportation can recede into the back end of your life. And what this means to us is that what happens on the end points of your trip, the beginning and the end, mean even more, which means that placemaking matters even more. If you have to make a concerted effort to go to a destination because, well, when you boot up your phone, you have to tell it where to go. You don't necessarily have that serendipitous experience of exploring a corridor necessarily. You're probably just going to tell it where to go. You have to know where to go, right? Which means that placemaking and branding become even more important for you to market yourself to future demographics because they have to know you exist and they have to want to go there. Because for them, it's not about the trip anymore. Uh, it's about where do they want to go. Transportation is just something that happens in the background um, that helps them get from point A to point B. I think that kind of philosophical change of how we even think that transportation um, and how we expect it to service us as citizens of the city is a radical rethinking, and it applies to every sector of urbanism in general on how you have to reapproach placemaking, urban design, real estate, workforce development, everything, economic development. It, that philosophical change itself is a radical shift that we haven't experienced yet um, in society. Well, let, let me pick up on that, and uh, Travis, start with you. And, and pun intended, Uber is developing a vertical with Uber Elevate, literally vertical, but through, through shared vehicles, uh, personal vehicles, down to things like bikes and electric scooters. What do you see as the prospects for the kind of shift to um, uh, 
how can I say, shared mobility versus vehicle ownership? Um, and what are the obstacles? What are the big challenges that Uber sees in making that transition? Yeah, absolutely. So our, our, our new CEO, Dara, um, he's been here about a year now. And one of, the, um, one of his clear vision at this point is to make Uber a, a multimodal platform from top to bottom. Um, and what that means, essentially, is that you can pull out your phone, and with the push of a button, you can get on a bike or a scooter, get a ride in a car, or eventually uh, uh, an eVTOL. Um, and so what that would look like, uh, you know, say you are uh, leaving work downtown. Um, it's rush hour. Uh, you don't want to take a, you don't want to hop in a car because you'll sit in traffic. So you grab a jump bike, uh, you get on your bike, you ride it somewhere where it's less densely populated. You could then grab a car, or you could ride it to a vertiport. Um, and if you're trying to get home to Plano, you can then, um, still in the app, drop your bike off, get in the elevator, go to the top of the vertiport, get in your eVTOL. eVTOL takes you out to, um, let's use Frisco Station, um, and then from there, you can catch a ride in an UberX or Uber Select pool, whatever you want, um, and get home. So really, it isn't. Um, it, it, in, in the past, Uber has helped a lot of transit agencies do the first and last mile um, of a trip, whether it's that bus that still drops you off, you know, a mile from home, whatever. Um, now, you, with this being fully uh, multimodal, um, we can truly help get you from A to B. Well, let, let me throw it to the panel. I must say some skepticism about the likelihood that, let's say, the prototypical soccer dad, two kids in tow, a couple bags full of equipment, are willing to kind of embrace that utopian vision. What's the likelihood that uh, North Texans and folks generally will move away from private ownership of transportation? After all, our ancestors had their own horse and buggy. They shipped to a private automobile. Why do we think that now is the time when we're going to see a shift to transportation as a service? And I'll throw that open to the rest of the panel. I, I, would, uh, I would just comment that, um, you know, I, I think that's a good point. Uh, by no means are we expecting everyone to go to uh, the car for sale or, or abandon it and move on. Um, but in, in, in reality, um, it, it's this transition period that we're talking about from the way we live our lives and the way we get around currently to what's been described in terms of uh, mobility as a service. Um, it is moving forward in some parts of the world um, and uh, very early stages uh, showing progress, but it's gonna take some time. And there is gonna be, uh, it's gonna be a gradual transition. There's gonna be people that are gonna be resisting that change. They're gonna, uh, they love their vehicles. They have no intentions of giving them up. Um, and so the implementation of, of connected vehicles, um, putting roadside units uh, along the corridors, <clears throat> tying them into um, traffic management centers and starting to develop the idea of, of, of a potential CAV lane uh, instead of a hot lane or an exp uh, a managed lane is certainly uh, something that is, is uh, definitely in, in discussions uh, as a feasible option. And what it would do is it would allow the ability to, for those vehicles that have that technology um, to be able to move forward. Toyota just recently announced all their vehicles are going to have connected vehicle onboard units, a standard feature across all their models. Um, it is a big move towards uh, CV technology in China. Um, and so 
just the uh, and the pace of development, development there is tremendous. So uh, the reality is that, that that technology is moving forward, and uh, I think that that's going to be key to be able to look at how that is implemented is through this transition period. Any others? Yeah, the, my, my personal opinion with a lot of technological adoption, especially right now, is I tend to be more optimistic about it. One, I'll say, I'm going to look around the room uh, for other uh, younger millennials in this room and say that as generational changes happen, um, technology adoption also rapidly increases. So if we're talking about, let's say, the smartphone, um, if anyone here actually remembers an era before the smartphone, spoiler, that was 2007 and 8 when the original iPhone was released. So we've gone one decade, and I guarantee almost every single person in this room has a smartphone in their pocket and gets nervous when they accidentally leave it behind in another room. So second, the, the technology is being adopted faster than ever. I mean, Uber themselves are a great testament. Um, there's a certain satisfaction uh, that, uh, of having someone else or something kind of take you to some place that you don't have to worry about it. Uh, what we often say in the office is that Texans in particular, uh, it's not that necessarily, in our opinion, always that people love their car. They love the freedom, and in Texas, in the way we design our cities, the car represents that freedom. Now, what happens if freedom can be given to a population through something other than the vehicle? What you see is rapid adoption of something like Uber or Lyft or any other you know, kind of mobility as a service option. Uh, it, this isn't that far in the future, and I do think it's going to happen sooner. You know, in Helsinki in Finland, they just launched last year uh, their service called WIM. And WIM is, the, they advertise themselves as the first, you know, larger scale mobility as a service model anywhere in the world. And for the equivalent of 600 US dollars, you get unlimited ride share, unlimited car rental, unlimited transit, unlimited bike share, unlimited literally anything that can get you anywhere around the entire region, greater region of Helsinki. You never have to worry about insurance, about maintenance, about anything. It's just a service. You pay that fee, and you get unlimited access across the entire region. And it's doing really, really well. I think that would most certainly catch fire here in the US. I think the technology that you're seeing that already adopted extremely quickly, anything from, honestly, you know, 2008 and forward, you can see how quickly it's adopted. We should expect that same level of optimism here. Yeah. I think it's generational, too, because I know I'm a family of five. I have three daughters. Two of them have grown and are driving now. And we had to put a gun to their head to get them to have a car because they didn't want one. They realized they had to drive. Um, and then I'm one of those people I can't imagine giving up my car. But I, but I do think it's a generational thing. And we've thought um, maybe it's not everyone gives up their cars, but if a family goes down to one car to have that flexibility, that's still a tremendous reduction. And as we're looking at how this affects real estate, we're trying to think, well, how, what does that overall reduction mean for parking facilities? Well, the, the, uh, it's roughly 10000 a year to own your own vehicle. Let's, uh, let's do some public opinion polling here. Raise your hand if you would give up one of your vehicles if for $5,000 you could have unlimited access to um, you know, Uber, Lyft, scooters, everything else, basically mobility as a service. So for five grand, would you give up your vehicle? Raise your hand. Okay. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Wait. <laughs> Pan Good question. Panel, I, I, I think we've sparked a transportation revolution here. And here we are. <laughs> okay. So that's, that, that's, that's, that's an interesting thing. Um, Rod, you, you've... You, you talked a little bit, and you know, we're throwing around some technical terms about connected vehicles and whatnot. 
Do you think that perhaps we are at the period of peak roads, that technology through electronic connections between vehicles that allow you to shrink the headways, uh, perhaps pooled rides where we share vehicles, and other techniques can actually, we can squeeze more vehicles on existing roadways, and we don't have to be building so much highway capacity. Are we at peak roads? I think we're definitely approaching it. I think we're, we're getting to the point where, um, you know, obviously there's, there's a development trend right now that's been going on for, for decades. That's not going to stop overnight, but, but I do agree that uh, it, will, it will accelerate once it becomes more popular. I think the insurance companies will help to generate that too. They'll, they'll accelerate things. And, and ultimately, if you start looking, we haven't talked about safety, but the idea of going to a, a self-driving vehicle versus one that's human-driven um, the tremendous benefit you get from a safety perspective and the, the 40,000 lives that are lost every year um, on, on roads um, just here in the States is, is, is going to uh, go down drastically once uh, you take the human out of the equation. So I think that there's going to be a, a rapid uh, adoption. Um, and, but, I mean, at the same time, there is still going to be some development and, and, and there will be people that will want to live in uh, far-flung areas, not necessarily everyone is going to become an urbanist. Uh, I completely agree that it is a generational thing and, uh, and that it's evolving that way, but uh, it, it, it's, it, it is going to start to slow down. And I, and I, think, that, I think that the politicians and the, and the governments are, you know, I don't know if they've fully wrapped their head around that, but uh, it definitely, the ability uh, of freeing up some, some revenue that, that is currently spent in infrastructure to look at uh, using that to uh, invest maybe more on more sustainable infrastructure and more technology is, is definitely uh, going to be a good opportunity looking into the future. So I know this question will stretch the technical capabilities of the panel, and, and no disrespect, but I'll throw this one to Stephen. Um, you focused on resiliency as part of the Resiliency Project for Dallas. Does greater, how can I say, does greater reliance on automation in doing all sorts of forms of transportation, does that advance resiliency, or does it expose us to a whole host of additional risk that sure. when we take humans out of the Sure. I'll answer that a couple of different ways. One, I'm going to answer kind of a twist on your previous question combined with this one. Um, personally, if, if you're looking at connected automated vehicles in a silo, uh, I actually think you're going to see a major, major spike in roadways. I don't think we're anywhere near peak roads. I say that for a couple of major reasons, which helps answer the resilience question. One, uh, what a lot of people haven't really considered, I think, enough is that by having autonomous vehicles, that means a greater segment of the population is going to be making trips because you don't need a driver's license anymore. Anyone of any certain age that we think is reasonable can now make a trip. The same with senior citizens and older generations. So the actual percentage of the population that's going to be making trips and more frequently has expanded. That alone will drive much more additional use on our roads. Second, any time in history we have made driving easier, we have built more roads and done more strong development. And I don't think that's going to change. If, if right now our general comfort level, let's say, is 45 minutes, for a commute, and a lot of that's due to just the pain of driving uh, long while. If, uh, if your drive to work is as comfortable as you sitting in your PJs at home, you're probably going to drive a lot further, more comfortably, and that means people are going to live further out, and that means more roads. So I think a lot of the benefits we hope to achieve through efficiencies and headways and uh, condensed you know, um, actual footprints of what a vehicle needs on a road, you're probably going to lose a lot of that benefit without proper policy in place to those other mitigating factors. And when you think about that on our larger term resilience scale, what that means, and especially when we were working with the city of Dallas on the resilience strategy, we took it from a very systems kind of design approach. 
what are all these major factors that are influencing cities that take it and drive it towards a certain direction? And if you understand that transportation is kind of in some ways the building block of the modern city size, right? We used to design cities based on the human scale. Then it was the streetcar scale. Now it's the automobile scale. What happens when we get to the connected automated vehicle scale? If you buy into the argument that more sprawling, far-flung developments can have a lot of negative externalities on us as a society, especially in terms of resilience and adaptation, then that means unless we do something proper about it, letting these technologies kind of go forth without really thinking critically on how to curb those effects can actually lead us down an absolutely less resilient, less sustainable path. I think that's something that every, you know, whether you're public or private sector, you should be very considerate of, is that while we know these technologies have the ability to unlock huge amounts of potential and great good, um, they also have the potential to do the opposite, unless we actually have some... So, so let me, because what, what Stephen's articulating is something that, that keeps planners up at night, which is you have these new transportation technologies, they increase the centrifugal effects of development. Let me throw it to the panel. How might the private sector and the public sector respond to make sure that our cities stay whole and, and, and flourish as opposed to continue to sprawl outward? Don't answer all at once. Yes. <laughs> this, this is a chance. What, what's the sustainable development, the, the, the tools that, that we have in our toolbox to adjust to these new technologies? Well, I, I, would, I would just comment that... Um, you know, I, I agree that trips are going to increase, but I think the efficiency of the road network is going to also increase. So the idea of, of getting uh, more trips and more vehicles uh, through platooning uh, on connected vehicle corridors uh, will help to accommodate a lot of the, the, the growth in ridership uh, and, and trips taken. Mm -hmm. um, and I also think that uh, with the uh, electrification of vehicle fleets, uh, which is definitely moving forward, and it's going to become the norm in the not-too-distant future, uh, I think that from a sustainability perspective that will help. Uh, of course, the key thing with that, of course, is that electricity itself isn't necessarily clean unless it's generated from a clean source. So if you're, if you're burning coal or fossil fuels um, to generate that electricity, uh, you're not really helping much. Um, in fact, you probably would be hurting the environment quite a bit more. But if, it's, if the electricity generated from wind or solar or sustainable sources, uh, the ability to uh, power those, those trips um, would be much more attractive. So let's do another crowdsourced um, opinion polling to test Stephen's point. If you could safely, in your vehicle, watch crazy cat videos to your heart's content on your commute, would you, would you extend your, your, your tolerance for commuting? Would it increase? Would you have a longer commute if, in your vehicle, you could you would have another screen and you wouldn't have to do the driving task. Would you be willing to do a longer commute if your vehicle was another screen? Raise your hand. Longer commutes? Okay. Sort of a mixed result. So maybe there's, an, maybe there's sort of an inherent half hour, you know, half right thing in a hour. vehicle. Well, one so. thing, though, too, I think that, that this potentially has the benefit to do is Think about smaller cities or smaller towns in Texas that people have moved away from. And I still think people are always going to want gathering places and are going to want public spaces. And, and um, you think about how that could potentially re-energize those smaller cities because now more people are willing to move there because it's not that bad of a commute from there. So it could have a very positive effect. 
The other thing, too, is I think what we've been trying to deal with, again, going back to parking, is you think about the heat island effect of just how much parking, how many parking lots we have, right? And how much parking we have in general, like look in downtown and look at the parking garages, look at the parking lots and what those are. Once we get rid of those and can convert those to either buildings, sustainable buildings, or to park space, that should have a positive effect on our cities. Great. I think we owe the audience some sense of timing. So if um, this is a hard question because we're talking about multiple technologies from inner city hyperloop to automated vehicles on the ground to aerial vehicles. But I'd like each of the panelists, and I think we're probably about at the closing, um, to give your sense of when these technologies are coming, when they're, you know, when they're going to be mature and have an actual real life impact on the commercial real estate market. So for, the, for Uber Air, uh, we want to start testing here in DFW uh, by 2020 and full commercial operation by 2023. Okay. And I know Uber is also active in the ground automated vehicle space. Any thoughts on timing in there? Uh, we, um, after the incident in Arizona, we hit pause and have been reevaluating, but uh, we uh, plan to move forward um, and as timing-wise that. I'm not quite sure. And I know you just recently announced a, a major partnership with Toyota, a local company, on, um, to accelerate that. Absolutely, yeah, another strong partnership here in North Texas. God, that helps. Stephen, the techno-optimist? <laughs> sure, so uh, I, I guess I'll try to answer that two ways. In terms of kind of a hardware perspective, um, you know, I, I do think that the tech firms seem to be moving very quickly. You know, so version Hyperloop 1 intends to have a working Hyperloop somewhere in the world by 2022. Uh, that may or may not be in the U.S., but this isn't something that they expect to happen in the 30s or 40s. This is something we expect to see in the next half decade to a decade, and that's a radically changing technology itself. So while I think that does take some time, and moves, it, move, it is moving quickly, but there's a lot of innovation, I think, coming to transportation that isn't necessarily built on moving dirt and building things and building hardware. A lot of it's just software and policy, and I think that actually has the ability to move incredibly fast. Uh, if you looked at what's happened over the last five years and ten years with transportation, it seems that what's generally happened is that the seas have somewhat parted in a lot of ways on both the federal all the way down the local level in terms of regulations on allowing technology to kind of take a step forward and move. And I think that's kind of reflective of the pent-up frustration that people have with just driving around. If anyone's ever driving from Dallas to Austin, I don't wish that upon my worst enemy. That's a really unfortunate experience in life. So I think that, that, that pent-up frustration, it extends to everyone. It affects everyone, and everyone can relate to it. And so what you're seeing is when new innovations come out, such as the Hyperloop, people tend to be a lot more optimistic about it because they see it as maybe, maybe this can make my drive down to another city or across town much less miserable. And so it seems it's somewhat of a consensus um, that people know this is an issue. We, wa we all want to address it. Everyone benefits. So it's time to make this policy happen. And that seems to be what's happening. Well, you think, too, about the growth in the Metroplex, like the numbers that I've seen are staggering, that we're going to double in population size in the Metroplex by 2030. <clears throat> so it needs to happen pretty fast. <laughs> and and, and I think we're going to need multiple modes, right, of transportation to make this work. And Tom, you and I have talked about this where we're making these huge investments into our transportation infrastructure you know, on the MPO level as a region, uh, but the long-term forecasts for congestion are, quite frankly, still pretty terrible. We are still sitting in parking lots, so we're spending billions and billions and billions of our tax base and our tax money just to sit in a parking lot on highways. 
So clearly, when everyone kind of understands that's what's happening, there's, I think, a lot of just uh, open-mindedness to looking at different solutions, since clearly what we're doing now isn't working. Well, let me take a, a quick detour, Rod, with you. Um, your, your region includes Western Canada, which includes Vancouver, which is pursuing a development path of no expressways in the inner city, heavy emphasis on public transit, and bike pedestrian environments, and it's generated some of the highest real estate values uh, in, in the world. Is, is Vancouver a model that DFW should emulate, or is there something about our development patterns that, that lend us strength and the ability to compete globally? Well, I think the, the Vancouver scenario is a little bit unique. Um, I, you know, I, one of the things that, that's driving a lot of that is the cost of real estate. So uh, one of the attractiveness uh, or attractions of Dallas is the fact that the cost of living is relatively low. Uh, and so that's a real draw. Uh, in Vancouver, um, to, to buy a, a, a teardown 1,000-square-foot uh, bungalow was $2 million. So it's, it's, um, it, it's, it, what it's doing is it's preventing young people from, from moving there, uh, being able to, to live, to own real estate uh, altogether. So it's changing the, the development patterns. Um, I think it's very sustainable, um, but it's, it's very expensive. So to kind of replicate something like that in, in a market like here, I think is, will be a challenge. Having said that, there, there definitely is a demand for it. And as we mentioned before, you know, the millennials, the, the baby boomers, um, the, the future, uh, a lot of the growth moving forward is around transit-orientated development. And you've got a, a great uh, LRT network here. Um, I think with blending in, again, the whole mobility as a service and blending in t the help of TNCs and, and uh, providing a service that allows people to live um, in more denser communities is definitely a uh, way of the future. And as we wrap up, if you could just then segue into your assessment about timing with these various modes. When, when are folks here in this audience going to feel real impact on, on real estate from transportation innovation? Yeah, you know, I mean, if you think about the amount of infrastructure we have outside that's been built over the last, you know, 50 years, uh, it's been it's a tremendous investment. Um, I, I, I do think that... Um, one of the other issues is, is as far as fully uh, autonomous vehicles, 100% uh, autonomous, um, that is still a little ways away. Um, the, the challenge of, of, of having a, a computer drive a vehicle that approaches a, a three-way uh, intersection where the, the T leg is a stop condition and the cross street in front of it is at a very high congestion rate, in order to be able to get that car to inch out and be able to look both directions, and find a gap when there isn't one. If you think about what a human does, you know, you, you, you kind of uh, try to find a gap. You look at the vehicle type. You think, oh, maybe I can take that vehicle. I'm a little faster than it. <laughs> you look at the driver. You assess, you know, are they paying attention? Right. And then you kind of cross your fingers and you hit the gas and you go for it. Uh, for a computer to do that, it is very, very challenging. And that's the thing that's really preventing vehicles from being fully autonomous. Um, and so I think that's going to be a bit of a hiccup, but um, they'll figure it out over time for sure. They will, and in fact, in Frisco, if you do the drive AI, that vehicle crosses a six-lane arterial, and you ride, and there's no stop sign, there, or there's a stop sign, but there's no signal. And that vehicle goes up, it looks both ways, goes to the island in the middle, looks both ways, and goes on. It's an amazing development of technology. Wow. Michael, you have the final word in terms of uh, your assessment of timing with this transportation revolution we've been talking about. Well, that's you know one of the reasons why when we were looking at the, the Elevate Summit and by 2023 having to have a facility like this ready, um, I think it is going to happen really quickly. But like we said, I mean, I think it needs to happen because 
that, that many people here, like I'm on these roads, I know how congested it can be. And uh, I'm just hoping it happens sooner than later, like really Great. quickly. Yeah. As I hopefully we are. Yeah. I think we've reached the uh, conclusion time-wise, so I want to get a big round of applause to our panelists, and thank you. Big thanks again to our panelists and to Boca Powell for sponsoring today's podcast. Remember to subscribe to TrekCast on iTunes and follow and like us on social media. We are at The Real Estate Council on Facebook and at Trek Dallas on Twitter and Instagram. Once again, I'm Bill San Antonio. We'll see you next time.